Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to episode 513 with my guest, Melinda Hill. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. If if uh, we were doing community theater, the introduction to this show would be, Oh, hello. Welcome to the darkness. But there's also light. And then a local band would play some copyright-free piece of music off-key. Let's dive into some loves. This was filled out by Renee, and uh, they write... I love reading and usually reading voraciously. Since the start of the quarantine in early March, I live in Vienna, Austria, I couldn't concentrate on anything, fiction or nonfiction, but now finally the love comes back. I love my friends because I took them for granted before and thought I was so self-reliant. Well, I'm not. I'm glad I can see them again. I love nature. Luckily, I live close to the woods and I love walking in them for hours. It's also one of the few things that calms my anxiety disorder. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, Vienna is one of the places on my bucket list. I have just always found something that just clicks with me in Germanic countries. Uh, Would you lump Austria? Would Austria be considered a Germanic country? I don't know. When I visited Switzerland, I loved it. When I visited Germany, I loved it. And there's something about Vienna that, uh, I don't know, just piques my interest. So what I'm saying is, can I stay with you? This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by uh, Broken Bird. And they write about their depression. I want to bury myself in a pile of blankets in a dark closet and sleep forever. 
Oh my God, do I get that one. Oh my God. That, that is Hall of Fame accurate. This is an email I got, uh, and uh, they write, Hi, it's been a while since we last spoke. We didn't receive a reply from you last time we reached out. Your Instagram was reviewed by our team. You were chosen to represent us for 2020. Looking forward to hearing from you. Oh, looking forward to hear from you. Our IG is YouGrindOfficial, and you will receive free items today. And then in all caps, send us a personal message on Instagram and don't reply to this email. I have to assume the all caps means that this was sent by the president. And he is looking to put together a team of people who like to grind but are considered amateurs. And uh, sadly, I am not considered an amateur. I hold the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest dry hump. It was set in the 70s, and I went through about 200 stuffed animals. And the next day, I actually also won a Guinness Book of World Records uh, for the most gingerly walk. That was that was a week of just pure celebration. And by celebration, I mean uh, people avoiding me. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Uh, I am a big fan of online therapy. I was a fan before the pandemic and the quarantine. Uh, BetterHelp, that's spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, uh, is, a, is a great way to uh, check out online therapy. They have a ton of counselors. They are um, meet all legal requirements in all 50 states. Um, just go to betterhelp.com slash mental and fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they will pair you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's a good fit for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, if you're between 13 and 17, they will direct you to teencounseling.com. And then you can fill out the paperwork and parental consent and uh, they'll get you get you rolling on that. But once once you do uh, fill out the parental consent and all that for teen counseling, then the relationship between the therapist and the client is uh, 100% private. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. My buddy Jordan Harbinger has a podcast called The Jordan Harbinger Show, uh, and he was one of my favorite guests. I'm, I'm chatting with him right now, and I wanted to give a shout-out to your, your podcast. You do such a great job with it. You have uh, some really amazing guests, some great topics, and you had an episode with a guy named Mark Edward. Am I getting that uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Mark Edward is a magician, right? He's a skeptic, and he also does these fake seances and things like that at the Magic Castle. And to pay the bills back in the day, he worked at the Psychic Friends Network, which is, you know, this ridiculous kind of fake psychic phone line thing. And on episode 413 of the Jordan Harbinger show, he talks about why not, not, not only are all psychics fake, but what's actually going on in the mind of both the psychics that think that they're actually psychic and are, of course are not and in the con artist versions that are just 
pulling the wool over people's eyes. He also shows all these different techniques that fake psychics use or psychics in general, because they're all fake, use to read people, right? The body language they're looking at, the things on your body that they're looking at, these little clues, how they get the clues. And then, of course, I had him do a reading on me, which was kind of scarily accurate. And then he explained exactly how he got all of those different factors right using things that are publicly available. So it's kind of this very interesting art of deception, and some people use it to make a living. And that was episode 413 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Really interesting tale. So could I use that if I want to take over the world? Yeah, you'd have to be pretty good at it, though. I think you'd have to be pretty good at it. It doesn't hold up to scientific scrutiny, right? If you have, like, a controlled environment, Mm -hmm. then I think it falls apart pretty quick. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. The Jordan Harbinger Show. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Eric, and he writes about his depression. Actually, he writes about his anxiety. Uh, Why do people have to look at me? About his alcoholism. The beer I just drank really wants company. About his love addiction. I just need to find the perfect girl that makes me a real person. About his sex addiction. Shove porn and sex into the black hole in my heart. About his codependency. Tell me who I am supposed to be and tell me I am good every hour. Snapshot from his life. My heart felt so full when I had a new girlfriend. I stopped taking antidepressants because I forgot I was sick. Uh, And about his depression. I would rather be dead than think about what I need to do next week. Oh my God, did I relate to that one. Not, Not so much wanting to be dead, but just anxiety about the future. It, it's I, I could have a day where I only have three errands to run, and it seems like Mount Everest. So thank you for that. I'm very, very much related to that. And this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by an agender person who re- refers to themselves as, I'm just fucking exhausted. And... About their ADD, they write, uh, one of my co-workers uh, who has known me for 30 years told me, you squirrel more than I do. I like that verb, squirrel. About their anxiety. When I stop worrying for a minute, I start worrying about why I stopped. About their autism, uh, high-functioning autism. I don't know whether it's worse that people keep referring to me as some variation of a robot or I wish it were true because then I wouldn't feel so stupid about my social ineptitude and about their imposter syndrome. Helicopter pilot, EMT, master's degree, triathlete, self-taught CBT and ERP, fencer, aviation maintenance manager, air traffic control manager, baker, polyglot, amateur astronomer, lifeguard, tutor, mentor, victim advocate, fraud. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel 
feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks people. for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Melinda Hill, who is an actress, a uh, screenwriter, performer, podcaster. Uh, let's give a shout-out to your new stand-up special, Inappropriate. I watched a, a, a clip from it, and I, I love that you, you delve into shit that a lot of people would go, um, that, that's not funny territory. Let's, <laughs> let's not go into that. And I mean, it's, you know, your special's called Inappropriate, but that's one of the things I like is when people get out there on the thin ice and uh, and and find the humor and stuff that a lot of people wouldn't find humor in. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Paul. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, I just did Melinda's podcast, which is called Let's Process This. This or that? Let's Process This with Melinda Hill. Yeah. Um, we had a nice conversation. I enjoyed talking to you. You're a very, very easy person to talk to. I was reading your bio and it said that you moved as a kid 27 times yeah. with, with your father who had bipolar. Was mom not in the picture? Mom was in the picture, too. She was? Yeah. Okay, but dad was uh, kind of leading the charge? Yeah. Yeah, he was never happier than when he was moving. Really? Mm-hmm. It's interesting <laughs> because they say the three most stressful things on people are um, a death, death of a loved one, divorce, and moving. Yeah, and it's kind of like moving kind of is all three of those things because you're divorcing the place you've been. That makes sense. And there's a death in your friendships unless you can Yeah, I never thought about going. that. And I, then the other big fear that people have is public speaking. And ironically, I went right into that line of work. As a what comedian. Do, what do you what do you think that's about? Being seen? Probably. Um and you know, I always think back like to always being in, introduced to as the new girl in the class yeah. and just how terrifying that was for me as a shy person to be introduced to yet another class of people just feeling like I'm being stared at and judged and not knowing how to fit in and I just think of actually what a great training ground that was for stand-up, yeah. <laughs> right? It <laughs> makes total sense. Uh, how, how do you think you adapted and your personality maybe was, was molded to cope with all of that moving? Uh, how did I adapt to it? Yeah. I think... Or did you not? Mostly, I kind of blocked it out. I don't remember most of it. I do remember I have large chunks of memory just gone. And people will write me now on Facebook and say, oh, and we were best friends in sixth grade and stuff like that. And I have no recollection who they are. Um, but I do remember like in the early moves, like around kindergarten, when we would move, I would – at night, I would – try to imprint 
everyone's names into my mind so I would never forget them. And I would promise them, I'm never going to forget you. And then after we moved, I would still talk to them in my mind. Really? And try to imprint them. And I I think that may have been the beginnings of some compulsive, <laughs> you know, um, attention to detail, um, not being able to forget things. You uh, wrote in your bio that uh, you have a rich fantasy life, which would make sense for for somebody who's trying to, I don't know, not be present for the the pain they're they're going through. Talk talk about that. Talk about fantasy and when it began and what some of the things you would escape into. Yeah, um, I would definitely. Um start fantasizing about clothes. I would fantasize about my clothes for the year. I would go through every detail. I would make build little outfits in my head. I would make up family trees, fictional family trees for fun. I would just come up with all these names. I would write little plays for my brother and the family pet to star in. I would always play like the wackadoo and have my brother be the straight man and um, do these little two-person plays. And I was just always deeply somewhere else, like imagining um, scenarios, scenes, plays, outfits. I would imagine having a boyfriend and all the date, you know, dates we would go on and all the little clothes I would be wearing. Are there moments when you couldn't block it out that you remember that that were really difficult? Yeah, I mean, definitely like in high school, like leaving in 11th grade, um, junior year of high school, having to leave my boyfriend and my best friend. And we'd been at that location for quite some time. So I, that was like the longest stretch we'd really been anywhere. So I'd had I'd spent a few years there. I had a boyfriend, I had a best friend. I it was a cool scene. It was in Colorado Springs and there were like artists and weirdos and you know, creative people and I was getting attention for my creative writing and acting in plays and suddenly we had to move to a little town in Kansas, and my brothers were very popular in Colorado as skateboarders. They mm. built their own half pipes, and there were, they had this whole scene in our backyard at all to like thirty skaters oh, at all man. times in our backyard. So it was a very happening kind of thing happening. And then we had to move to this little town in Kansas, two thousand people, brick streets, and it was like going back in time to the fifties, like. It's the town where my parents met, and they everyone was a football player or cheerleader, and every like it seemed like every day was school spirit day, <laughs> and I was just like, that was so hard to. It was it was so depressing that some days I would start to walk to the school and I would just go, I can't do it. And I would just go back home and go to bed. And my mom would just be like, all right. <laughs> she understood. What were the reasons for the, the moving? Uh, my dad typically had some kind of reason. Some were legit job transfers. Some were he quit a job or he was let go. And um, I mean, it, they were all different reasons. Uh, 
talk about your dad having bipolar. Do you know if it is one or two? I don't know. That's a good question. And it's hard to ascertain any real information because I, I don't know that he's ever gotten um, an accurate diagnosis. And I don't know that we will ever know the real story because he kind of is a master at telling everyone what they want to hear. Were there times where he was up for, you know, more than 24 hours straight with grandiose ideas? That I don't know. He did seem pretty, he was definitely very excited when we were moving. He was ecstatic. He was really charismatic, funny, charming, and had a way of getting everyone very excited about the move. Mm. And so those were like fun times. Like, oh, yeah, we're moving, you know, this is amazing. And he'd go around and introduce himself to all the new neighbors. And it was like, this is the place. This place is going to be the place, you know, kind of thing. And um, and then um, it seemed like a short Shortly after, sometimes longer after we moved, and he realized it didn't fix whatever, then he would go into, uh, like, wasn't even there anymore. Like, le- like Elvis left the building. He was a husk. He was so sad. He wouldn't talk to anyone. He was, like, just low. Did you blame yourself? Or did you know he was going through something that had nothing to do with you? I didn't know what it was because he wasn't diagnosed till way later, way after I'd moved out and was grown up. I didn't know what his deal was. I remember telling him, I think you need to go to therapy. And um, he also had extreme rages that were really scary. So I remember trying to reason with him um, and also trying to protect my mom and my brothers um and also fantasizing about leaving moving out i don't know that i thought it was my fault but i also didn't really know it was a thing i didn't know people had depression i didn't know what bipolar was i didn't know what a rager was was there a part of you that was attempting to fix or soften what was was going on or did you just kind of stand back and wait for the storm to blow over I definitely was always trying to fix it. It made me a a very good, like, little amateur counselor. I was like my mom's little amateur counselor, you know, and I would just give her all these pep talks and be like, you can do it. You can leave. You know, you can get out of here. And How old were you when those started? I don't remember what age, but I feel like I've always just kind of been her counselor. She would even call me her counselor. She still does. Oh, man, that's so fucked up. It is. It's so fucked up. When parents, when parents reverse the parenting and they become the child, it just robs that kid of their, of their childhood. That's such a weight to bear and they don't know. And it's, and it's kind of, cause I very, very much relate. I became my mom's sounding board at like seven about her marriage. And I just remember feeling like I had to emotionally, you know, keep her spirits up when, when she would get down and, it it it's a bit of a um, you feel like a big shot because an uh, an adult is confiding in you, so you feel kind of intelligent and important, but you don't realize that then you stuff what's going on with you, and you don't even know what it is that you're feeling. Or at least that was the case with me. What what was it like for you if you? 
you can kind of go back in time and re- remember the things you were that yeah. you had nobody to share with. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was um, that sense of validation coming from feeling like I was helping my mom fix problems and just feeling like powerless when I would hear her in her bedroom just crying for like hours. Just She would just be crying and just feeling like, oh, I don't know how to fix this and how do I fix like being like five years old wanting to be able to fix, save, protect. And I would have um, nightmares about, you know, trying to save her from my dad. like From, from his anger? Or yeah, just, okay. like he'd be in a yeah. rage attacking her and I would... Physically attacking her or verbally? Verbally, not physically abusive, but definitely like always the threat of it, like right. throwing a vacuum cleaner, you know throwing objects but you know def only only hit us once that i remember um but definitely like huge verbal abuser and just trying to save my mom and just feeling like yeah like i'm that little counselor and it wasn't until really going into my 20s and joining al-anon that i started to go oh i need to unlearn this rule that 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 my value is tied up in fixing other people's problems or the illusion right. that I'm fixing people. And I started to realize I'm not even that good of a counselor. Like my <laughs> my clients are not improving. They're not they're not successfully leaving the marriage. And this is a job I need to resign from. Oh my God, what a lifesaver that yeah. must have been for you. Yeah. Did, did you feel a weight lifted? When oh, you- huge. And I started to take it back, you know, unconsciously in ver- you know, various ways. And now I just have to be so discerning. Um, but you learn all these great tools there of yeah. like just saying, I don't know, or I hear you. And or, yes is a complete sentence or no is a complete sentence. Yeah. Yeah, and just being like, you don't have to be the superhero uh, to fix these things and to turn that superhero uh, power back on yourself and start like focusing on trying to save you. Like that's the only person you have any real power over saving. So what did you discover as you uh, pulled back your focus on other people and you started to get in touch with what was going on with you internally and externally? I mean, what did I discover? Yeah. Uh, there's so much there. <laughs> well, I got nothing but time. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I discovered that if I'm spending all this time focused on other people's stuff, why don't they do this? Because I felt like when I saw people, I could size them up and be like, oh, they just need this, this, and this, and then they'll be good to go. And I was constantly in this like renovation mode thinking I was helping them. And that is the classic Al-Anon prototype, right? Like, and so like, you know, when you stop doing that, you start to realize it's like, oh, when these people, it's not like, oh, when these people get better, then my life can go right. It stops being that and it starts being like, 
what other people are doing is none of my business. I can't help them. I can't save them. I can't they'll fix be them. ready when they're ready, if ever, to, to change, to look at themselves, to go get help. That's right. And nobody can help them be ready. And by the way, a lot of people love their pain. And they want to keep it going. It makes them feel alive. They have their own reasons for that, whatever. It feels familiar. They want to hold on. They, they're, not, they're not ready to let that go. And that I get to allow people to have the dignity of their own path. And when I, and like all I can do in a day is look at myself. And like when I start looking at myself, oh, there's a lot of stuff that could be fixed here, you know? Like, and so then, of course, you know, things start to get, um, you know, that there's just like whenever I'm looking at someone else could definitely be better doing something. It's time to, you know, look at me. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the, uh, the old adage that, uh, you know, when you're pointing your finger at someone, you got three, three fingers pointing back at you. Yeah. And nobody ever gets better from someone judging, assessing their situation and assigning, um, a, a get better medication for them. Right. Unless it's a professional. And and the illusion, is, the difficulty is sometimes we may be right what that person needs, but that's up to them. That's that's their own, their own shit. And I think when somebody does reach out for help and does start to do the work on themselves because they're doing it for themselves and not somebody else, the chances of... of real growth are are so much better. I, I know so many addicts who, you know, get into recovery to get the heat off. And that's a very, very shaky uh, foundation to try to stay sober with. Yeah. And you, I, I believe in, you know, the whole thing of attraction, not promotion. If yeah. you have a good life, people are going to ask you what you're doing. Right. You don't need to promote it. Right. You don't need to tell them <laughs> to join your thing. Just have a good life. Lead so, by example. So what were... So I'm just going to take a wild guess. You might have even said it already that perfectionism is a is a thing uh, that you struggle with. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just... It's so destructive and it really robs people of the joy of living and experiencing life and... And being one of many. You know, when we try to stand out with our perfection, you're separating yourself from from other people yeah and nobody i mean i don't want to see some perfect right thing a person who's never struggled and who has always had it all together that's right. so boring i don't relate you know i want to know what people have overcome and stuff so i mean i am a and I was finding in my creativity, like my, my creative work, like I had all these ideas, I want to do all these projects, and I would sit down to do it, and, and it wasn't already done, and I would just give up. And like years would go by, you know, like I did stand up once, it went great, I crushed it by fluke first time, and then the second time I did it, it wasn't a packed room, I didn't realize you had to do the same jokes again, right. and it didn't go well. And so I stopped doing it again for many years. And, you know, like sitting down to write a script, it's like, oh, well, I don't know how to write a script. Or like, I remember in second grade, I wanted my teacher was like, she's, you know, very good writer, I'm gonna help her write her book. And I was trying to write this book, and I didn't know how to write a book. 
So I was totally disorganized. I had, you know, was in writing second grade. Second you were trying grade, to write a book. Was trying to write a book. Well, well, kids need to be published by third grade. So I understand the pressure. <laughs> well, I was so disappointed that I couldn't finish this book because I didn't know how to write one. Wow. That... And I lived in that shame for a very long time. And that's the early. I remember the perfectionism even before that, though. I remember like being like four. And there was an Easter egg hunt that all my cousins were participating in. It looked so fun. All these beautiful colored eggs, the fun and joy of Easter. And I thought, I, and they were like, come on, join us. And I desperately wanted to join them and participate. But I was afraid I might not win. So I didn't let myself play. Wow. Wow. And they were begging me. And I wanted to. And I could not let myself do it. What do you think the fear was if you didn't win? Uh, I think it was just um, there. I think we just walked on eggshells. My dad was uh, who who knew why he got mad when, and I was I internalized that and thought I just need to be perfect, like so nobody gets mad, nobody has a an emotion, and I'll be safe. If, if you could get in a time machine and go back to yourself at any age and say something what 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 would you do um i guess i would say like you know in, enjoy enjoy your your day participate let people know you but like even as I'm thinking that, I'm thinking of that little kid who's so scared, who's just trying to survive. Do you find remnants of... Actually, I would tell her, ask for help. Tell someone what's going on in your family. And who do you think, if anyone, you would have reached out to? Well, that's the thing, because you're moving so much, you don't really have any roots but I did try one time, and this is in the special, but I, in, in EMDR therapy, um, I uncovered a memory that um, when I was really young, I tape recorded one of my dad's rages, tried to smuggle the tape into my grandma's house and leave it there uh, so that someone could know what was happening in our house and save us. Wow, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And like nobody found the tape. And and then cuz I remember next time I saw my grandma I felt scared that she would find it and my dad would get in trouble. So I was like trying to be like, "Hey, you know that tape I left here was a joke." And she was just like, "I don't know what you're talking about." And I find a tape. So this came up in therapy. I had I didn't remember it, but when it came up in therapy, so I was, I'm doing EMDR. I was doing EMDR before I graduated. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, but when that came up, it was it was such a a rich memory to process because think of that playing out in your life, like the idea that nobody's getting the tape 
for me, what it created was like a belief, like nobody can, can hear you. Nobody can help. There's no protection. Like you go to all this effort to smuggle this tape out and sneak a tape and nobody's going to help. And so think of that playing out just even as being an entertainment how many times, right? Because if we don't heal our trauma, we continue to recreate it. So it's recreating on an unconscious level. I, I can think of so many instances that I had like a giant show sold out. Suddenly the guy didn't forgot to put a, you know, a tape in the camera. <laughs> you know, like so many instances like this where the outside is just, you're working so hard to have this career, but like inside you're kind of recreating this thing where your your voice and 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 also on the level of like hey your voice doesn't matter you know don't bother to speak up nobody's gonna hear it like like, things like like that that like that terrible dream where you scream and nothing comes out yeah i can't imagine what uh uh a feeling of powerlessness was there any rage in there or was it just kind of turned inward? I think it was. That's a good question. I think it was turned inward because I remember um, doing step work with um, a sponsor who was saying like, um, I was saying, oh, and I was so mad because I, you know, or I was so sad that I couldn't finish this book at age, you know, in second grade at age eight or whatever. And uh, she was like, weren't you mad that you had to leave your school that you liked again? And I was like, oh, oh, so when I, instead of feeling mad at my parents or, you know, I would turn it into perfectionism. Like, oh, I should, like a shame, like I should have been able to write a book by now. Because then you have a sense of control and the world isn't filled with what, seems like chaos and invisibility yeah yeah because it's much easier it's like emotional cutting to be like um you know to to pull that old card you know card trick out and be like oh i suck i can't finish a book i can't finish a script whatever instead of feeling the feelings of like powerlessness so what are the ways that you escape into as an adult to not feel uncomfortable feelings? Well, or are there none? Now I have all these healthy tools. Mm-hmm. So So let's go back to before you developed the tools and give us some snapshots of what that looked like when you were at your sickest as an adult and then let's have some snapshots from once you found some tools to to cope yeah okay i mean it kind of like ran the gamut of um avoidant behavior um avoidant compulsive behavior i mean definitely can can, can you be more specific if you're comfortable because i'm i'm it's a bit vague for me to understand exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I I was a smoker. I smoked like 
pack a day cigarettes. Mm-hmm. I would eat like once a day. Um, hardly ate. Um, was this a body image thing or just a lack of self-care thing? And I'm talking about like early 20s, just moving to L.A. Mm-hmm. I think it was just like it wasn't a body image thing. It just was I didn't have any self-care. So I would smoke. I would eat like once a day. I didn't know much about nutrition. Um, I drank. I was a drinker, a periodic um, vodka drinker. Mm -hmm. And I was in a fantasy about people. I was like a – I had like – love and fantasy addict stuff with my relationships. And I was also, um, yeah, that's it. And was tied up with a very chaotic people, chaotic, charismatic people who were in a crisis, who I wanted to save. Your emotional (laughs) to-do list. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to get in there and save them. And that was preventing me from really showing up for my dreams and goals. What did it look like when you were uh, engaged in in any of these things, if you can think of real-life examples? Oh, it was very painful. I mean, I didn't have a sense of self. I didn't know my value. So I was looking outside of myself like for validation from career, boyfriends, people. And in that time between an audition and hearing if you got the part, I could not stand that part. I, I couldn't stand it. I, and I would have to go to a bar and day drink. Because you might find out that you're not valid as a human being if they didn't choose you. I could not stand it. Confirms all of your worst fears is you're not worthy of somebody saying you're special. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and, and ironically or unironically, um, when I started to do to do work on myself, like around self-acceptance and self-love and healing and stuff um, and started to really like love myself and find self-acceptance and and inner validation, I started to get a lot more acting work very easily because I also didn't need it because I knew that my value was inherent, um, not contingent on outside accomplishments or somebody else thinking I was okay, or any of that stuff. Yeah, there, there's a, uh, there are fumes to desperation that are so easy <laughs> to smell uh, if they're not our own. But when they're our own, we don't realize how desperate our eyes can look and our body language. And um, you know, one of the, I think one of the most attractive things to the people who have power in this town is indifference. Mm. Absolutely. Well, in every walk of life. And I think I had done 
okay on a, on a lot of bravado and self-will. I had managed to book a lot of things from just like acting like I was felt great about myself. But when I really like dropped into like totally reparenting and being so kind to myself and knowing that no audition is more than my peace of mind. No guy is worth more than my peace of mind. That's when, you know, of course, because I start to love myself, all the things in your life are reflected back to you at higher quality, you know, because you're, you can only attract in how you feel about yourself. Uh, before you got to that place, what did you, what was the approach to relationships and what were the pitfalls for you? I imagine there were patterns that you repeated over and over. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, just really unavailable projects, projects, <laughs> renos, renos, renovations. Um, and yeah, really, you know, um, a lot of unavailable people and then the people who are available and amazing of course I would lose interest I gotta go you know I'm just not feeling it and um and then really like finally like really looking at that I got to see like oh actually I'm the unavailable one because right. I'm I'm not a victim I'm a perp and I'm seeking the most unavailable people so that I can can rem I can remain alone and and I don't have to commit to anything and I can be in my little fortress, and I don't have to have intimacy, real intimacy. Right. And and that was kind of across the board in my life and my work as well. I wasn't being, you know, I think the best comedy is being truly authentic and um, and real. And I was, you know, not really able to have that intimacy in my work either. Did you think that you had intimacy before you found real intimacy? Did you, th did you think that you felt love when there was an unavailable guy that you were, you know, maybe pining after or trying to get to, to come back or give you more attention? Oh, for sure. I mean, when, when I landed, I mean, first of all, my first boyfriend when I was 16 was amazing. And we were together like a year and a half before I had to move to Kansas. Um, and by the way, I just want to say, like, I am in a place now like where I have total love and compassion for my parents. And I absolutely know they did the best they could with their limited toolbox. Um, but yeah, I just definitely liked people, you know, that were... And my first boyfriend in LA, we went out a year and a half and got promised to promise ring to get engaged. And um we definitely were very in love, but it was um you know, when that ended, I was absolutely devastated much longer, I think, than a person should be devastated for. I mean, these were the the years of my life you know, 23, 21 to 25, that I was in complete romantic obsession with this person. Um, and what did that look like, romantic obsession? Just couldn't stop ruminating, replaying it, what happened, you know, all those things. And he was, you know, um, 
I mean, that I, I would say that was a group, a good relationship for like a, a year and a half. Um, but yeah, again, not having that sense of value, like I probably had it when I met him and then probably just, you know, thought the value now was him. That he's going to give me the feelings I'm looking for the, to, so I can feel. Instead of keeping that core center, like right. I'm, he's great, I'm great, and then, you know, and then we have this relationship that's great and it's three separate entities instead of like merging into the codependent, okay, now I'm going to move in after two months and, right. you know, all that stuff, all that fun stuff. I, I heard somebody say in a support group uh, once, uh, become the person that you're looking for embody the things that you want to find in another person and uh, i love that yeah i love that and it makes total total sense because then you it's it's so much easier to see your inherent self-worth i mean ideally we should be able to see that we have inherent worth whether we're growing or not well, that's right. And um, I mean, that's why I got this ring. This is my engagement ring to me. I'm getting awesome. married. That's awesome. <laughs> because it's a Are you reminder. sure you don't want to cut and run? <laughs> oh, I do every day. But I'm, I'm you know, but I, I love this like reminder to just like, yeah, that I'm in this, I'm building this relationship with myself and I'm, you know, never going to leave me. And, uh, and so, you know, cultivating, like feeling good every day, not contingent on any outside stuff. has been really big. So I imagine gratitude is uh, a necessary thing for you to get into your head. For sure. I do gratitude. I am a gratitude junkie. I wake up, I do my little prayer meditation, I do my my bulletproof coffee, and then I'm like in the gratitude list. And what's great about a gratitude list, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but it really does change um, your perception and allows you to enjoy all that is here. And I love to take it back and and do, you know, my whole life. And I like to look at it. I call it a win inventory. Mm-hmm. I like to go through and look at all the wins and my and I and I listen to my intuition and I call that win tuition. I go back mm-hmm. through like my life and I'm looking at all the wins and how my intuition guided me perfectly in that time and how even the stuff like growing up with that family specifically like there's so much gratitude there you know that i got a lot out of that and like i they gave me a lot you know even though it's not what i would have probably chosen um it made me who i am it started the ball rolling on you having to find the tools that you developed just to survive but now you get to break them out and use them in everyday life yeah, and just, you know, it gives me so much empathy and compassion for, you know, many of my best friends now are are bipolar and it gives me so much empathy and compassion for people. Uh, I I see that my dad is totally 
separate from his mental illness. He didn't choose that. He didn't choose that rage. It's probably familial trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, but what's, I mean, I wish he could have been happy. I wish he could have gotten maybe the right meds or whatever, gotten help and not dragged everyone through that. But, you know, I'm, do I wish my mom could have left earlier? Yes. But, you know, it gives me compassion. And also what's really exciting is it led me to get help because I was in so much pain. And by me helping myself, I get to help countless other people in my work and in, you know, and I wouldn't have any of that help to give if I didn't have to go through that. That's the thing that's so hard to see when we're feeling hopeless and isolated and just nursing our pain in the in the corner of a room not returning phone calls we 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 can't even conceive of the fact that we might feel a sense of meaning and purpose once we get on our feet and begin to feel um like we got some momentum going well you you it rarely looks like a gift at the time rarely it looks like the worst thing ever. Hideous wrapping paper. I don't know if yeah. I'm gonna. <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna make it through another day. I remember saying that every day. I don't know if I'm gonna make it through this day. And I would tell people. And for a long time, that's why, like when COVID hit and stuff, I completely get that everyone is totally freaked out. But for someone who lived in constant anxiety and fear the whole first part of my life, this is like nothing. When COVID hit, I felt like the my outer world finally reflected my inner world. Because mm-hmm. when I would go grocery shopping, I would buy four tubes of toothpaste. I would, you know, when COVID hit, I had 20 rolls of toilet paper, 20 rolls of paper towels, because that doom part of my brain has been there forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it's like, I, you know, I'll read, you know, the news and sometimes I, you know, I'll go there. But like, typically, I'm like, Typically, like that, the first part of my life felt like a war zone. And now it's like there is joy in each day, no matter what chaos is going on in the outside world. There is gratitude. There is peace. There are ways to get to feeling good. And sometimes... Or just feeling at all, I think, is a success. Like just just crying, just crying, being able to feel your feelings instead of, you know, stuff food in it or text some unavailable guy or smoke a pack of cigarettes, you know, just to have tools and to be able to feel the feelings. That's part of being in life. That And I I consider that a gift today because there's so long I I couldn't be in life. So true. So true. I mean, the when you start to recover, the good news is is you're going to f- be able to experience joy, and the bad news is is you're going to be able to experience pain and sadness. But I think we also get to experience that those feelings are fleeting, and the more we sit through the pain, the more we're reminded that things things do change. You know, things do change, and whatever you're going through 
can help someone else who is about to go through the same thing or is going to need someone who made it through. And so that's, that's really amazing. I mean, I felt weird, you know, in my comedy special, I'm talking about the growing up with a bipolar parent and I felt so weird afterward. Like, I don't know if I should say this, like it's that little girl trying to hide the tape again. Right. But Mm -hmm. it's like my friend Maria Bamford said, what if someone's in um, a home right now in that situation who would like to hear that someone else made it out and that that is like why that's added so much to you know my comedy is that like thinking of like how can it help someone else how can it serve you know a a greater amount of people you know you were talking about finding comfort um in the little things once you started to have some tools and 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 some gratitude and for me the idea of you know um god or a a higher power it's hard to i believe there's something out there and at the very least i know that when there's a shit storm i can find a quiet place in there i i can find a place where i can let it go and say i'm not in charge of this i'm just going to look for the beauty and the human connection in here i don't know if the force or forces that run the universe want children to starve or Mm. all the other shit that's so horrifying to look at and think about. But I don't have to know whether or not they're in charge of that. I just have to know where I can seek comfort and peace when shit storms hit because it works on a practical level. It works for me, whether I'm kidding myself or not, it works for me. And to me, that's that spirituality. Yeah. Um, and you're so lucky to have that, you know, like I, I, I have it as well. And, and that's the first thing, you know, that you'll learn in EMDR is you'll establish a safe space to go to when things are too much. And, you know, for me, I love beaches. I'll go to a beach, but I'm a nature person and I grew up my formative years in the mountains. So, just to have a safe space to go in your mind to retreat um, and and the power of three deep breaths is like, you know, huge. Let's, uh, well, first, is there anything else you'd like to share or talk about before we wrap up? I'm thinking to, to end this, it would be nice to just uh, fade out on a gratitude list, each of us. <laughs> Sharing things we're grateful for. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's what I forgot to tell you. I have a movie that's coming out. You do? Yeah. What's it called? <laughs> it's called Love, Weddings, and Other Disasters. Awesome. Yeah. When, when does it come out? December 4th. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it stars Diane Keaton. Wow. And Jeremy Irons. Oh, my God. And I have, like, a, a really cool lead role. Oh, my God. That's fucking huge. I, I, I totally forgot to tell you about that. But, um, but Th- also... That would have been the first thing I casually <laughs> inserted into the conversation and repeated throughout the conversation. Be like, you know, my friend Jeremy Irons always says... 
Um, uh, so the co- the comedy special is coming out October twentieth, and it's but- called Inappropriate. And people can find it, like, what, on... Just go to MelindaHill.com. Okay. I mean, it's many places, but you can access all of them at okay. my site. But, yeah, and then the movie's coming out December 4th. So and get, that's exciting. And, and give me the name of it again. It's called Love, Weddings, and Other Disasters. And um, you can be followed on Instagram at Melinda Hill? At Melinda Hill. At, sorry, at... Real Melinda Hill. Oh, fake Melinda Hill has such a shit Instagram account. <laughs> so glad you added real to it. <laughs> um, oh, I know. I And I wanted to plug your podcast again, which is called Let's Process This. Yeah. Uh, I am grateful for the love of my dog, Gracie. I'm grateful for the love of your dog because what a sweetie. But I'm also grateful that we finally did this podcast we've been talking about this for, for like two years three years yeah. Yeah. yeah so i and i'm so that brings me to my next gratitude i'm grateful for divine timing because i think that projects have timing relationships have timing yeah. and podcasts have timing couldn't agree more uh i am grateful for the use of my uh, arms and legs that's a good one i am grateful that i got to see all of your awesome wooden furniture today that is so inspiring thank you. i can't even believe you made this thank you um it's beautiful and it inspired me to get clean modern pieces and create that clean modern vibe and i also am grateful um that you inspired me to get a vaporizer i am grateful for a well-written book that transports me to a place where I can experience something I would otherwise never experience. I love books. Um, I am grateful that I'm writing a book. Um, And it makes me happy um, to have things to share. And I also love writing. I am grateful for hockey the sport of hockey and all that it embodies the speed of it the grace of it the physicality of it the uh, camaraderie and the combination i play defense which uh, to me is a really fun combination of geometry and psychology i am grateful for long walks and that my friend beth asked me to go to the beach today which beach are you gonna go to i guess manhattan beach which i've never been to you've never been to manhattan beach no i typically go to malibu or santa monica i am grateful for uh fall days when it's still sunny out but the high temperature is around 65 or 70 i am grateful that i got married with a giant engagement ring (laughs) that's fake it's fake (laughs) i'm grateful for a perfectly tuned guitar that uh just sounds like a bell when you hit a note and it's so clear and it's just kind of chimey i am grateful that you just inspired me to take up guitar lessons which i've been wanting to do since college and i do have a guitar 
there are so many great resources on YouTube to learn guitar. I will go Thank on you. there to learn songs that I can't figure out. And uh, so many great guitar teachers online. Thank so many you, great Paul. ones. Yeah. Um, I'm grateful for my cat. Stop I'm grateful best. for um, the listeners who have hung in. Uh, this is probably going to sound incredibly self-deprecating, but it, it truly is what I think and feel a lot of times who have hung in through the so-so episodes of the podcast. And um, Which ones were so-so? In, in my mind, there are so-so moments in everything that I do. It's not my guests. It's It's like... The things that I do, do I talk too much about myself? Was I too harsh on somebody? Did I overlook some truth because I was afraid of being disliked or coming across as, as critical? You know, on and on and on. And you know, as, as a comedian, that part of our brain that dissects and criticizes things so we can turn it into laughs is also there in our daily lives telling yes. us, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. You know, I know, you know what I've been trying to do and I'm grateful for this is a day at a time. I'm trying to abstain from shame. So hard and going, I should have shooting all over myself. I'm trying to <laughs> abstain from it should look like this. I should have done that. Um, I should have said more. I should have said less. And I'm trying to just trust that my intention it has been received and what I did was enough. It is so challenging. So challenging. Uh, give me a gratitude. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I have my podcast because it is connecting me. During COVID, when mm -hmm. it's been so lonely and isolated, it has been a way to connect with others. Um, and, you know, I got to talk to you and I got to talk to so many great people. And, 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 and it's also healing my perfectionism. Because yeah. it's not a perfect podcast. It, the sound is weird. It's on IG Live. It cuts out sporadically. And that's allowing me to do something imperfectly and to let it be about connection and not isolating. Well, I think that's a great one to, to end on. Melinda, thanks. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. And, uh, me too. People want to know more about you. They can go to melindahill.com and uh, find it all there. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. What a sweetheart. And I mean that in the most condescending uh, way humanly possible. You know, what, a, what a nice conversation. It was nice to finally get to meet her. This episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Uh, you guys know how much uh, my dog Gracie means to me. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you have a Gracie in your life and you're at the vet's office and... Uh, all of a sudden, you get a bill for a couple of grand. Well, if you had pet insurance, your pet could be covered for accidents or illnesses, and that's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. 
Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online, you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And judgment-free is definitely how I would describe uh, the sessions that I've had with my cerebral therapist. Her name is Megan. She is thoughtful. She is empathetic and uh, and she's knowledgeable and she's been helping me clarify baby steps I can take to uh, help achieve the professional goals that I uh, am trying to set. Um, I'm a big fan. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving our listeners 15% off the first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code MENTAL. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast and then use the code MENTAL to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. See site for details. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, it is a great way to help out. Um, You can also write a review on iTunes. Give us a good rating. You can donate. Uh, If you go to our website, metalpod.com, there's a couple different ways. You can become a monthly Patreon supporter, which is hugely, hugely uh, helpful. You can make one-time PayPal donations, or you can sit with your jaw open, staring out the window, wondering what might have been. I like to do that. It actually burns very few calories. But it does somehow just just feel right. This is from the love survey filled out by I Would Die for That Dog. And they write, The look my dog gives me when I'm spooning him. Like he doesn't have an ounce of judgment, just unconditional love. Oh my God, do I love that one. The look that Gracie gives me when we are cuddling, especially in the cold weather. She gets under the blankets and, uh, and I love when her eyes start to roll into the back of her head. So great. Thank you for that one. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, Tired. And she writes about her anxiety. Like the adrenaline rush you get when you're watching an end-of-the-world action movie and one of the main characters is about to die, except it's there when you're just trying to brush your fucking teeth. 
about her love addiction. I never feel lower than I do when I have feelings for someone, but I never feel higher than I do when I have feelings for someone. About her PMDD, it feels like a different person has come in and occupied my body for a week. About living with multiple mental disorders, it feels like I wonder which of these things is making me feel like crashing my car into a wall today. And about having borderline personality disorder, it feels like something is inherently wrong with who you are as a person. I'm an alien living inside a human body, and I'm just trying my best to be one of you guys. Oh, that's so that's so touching and 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 human. I mean, isn't that isn't that the the, the struggle is to to feel a part of to deal with that? void that we all have. This is from the love survey filled out by Planets Collide, and they write, I love at night wrapping myself around my wife and passing out, going to take a nap, and the dogs cuddling between your legs and around your body. A cool breeze on a humid southern day, or a salty breeze when you're on the coast. Oh, those are great. Oh, and I do love that. I do love that feeling when a dog just curls up into that that fork in your legs when your legs are bent and you're sleeping. It just feels, I don't know. There's something about having a weight laying on top of you that, that at least for me, it it just feels so good. Sometimes when I'm having trouble getting uh, up in the morning, I'll ask my girlfriend to come in and, uh, and just lay on top of me and something about that it just it just feels good this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by sugar pill and she writes about her depression my chronic depression is like a bloodhound and that no distance is too great for him to find me Ugh, so good about her anxiety i hold my breath when using the crosswalk about her alcoholism, I'm living proof that you can kick one bad habit by picking up another. About her love addiction, I say I love you to my partner before rolling over and fantasizing about my therapist. About PTSD, I now know that turtlenecks are out because that was my abuser's favorite place to kiss. Oh man, that's rough. About experiencing sexual bias, I swear to God, I will marry the first guy that doesn't interrupt me. About experiencing racial or cultural bias, what are you is a common icebreaker when people meet me. Oh, that's got to be so fucking draining. About living with an abuser, my caretaker was physically, verbally, emotionally, and sexually abusive during my childhood. Living with them was like building a house with a different blueprint each day. About her anger issues, I resent the toddler who frowned at me from his shopping cart seat as I left the liquor store in Florida on the afternoon of December 23rd, 2014. Oh yeah, holding holding on to a nice resentment. About her perfectionism, remember when I tried to keep up with email during the 5150? About her body dysmorphia, I see myself via broadcast delay. I think I look good years after the picture was taken. Oh, that's so true. That's so fucked up that we can only appreciate how we looked until a decade has passed. 
and about experiencing the pandemic. Like early sobriety, I'm once again trying to parse out the difference between isolation and solitude. Snapshot from her life. The year before I stopped drinking, I went to the doctor for what I suspected was a UTI. The doctor mentioned that my urine sample had a high level of alcohol. I thought it was absurd for the doctor to mention that. Sure, it was 9 a.m., and sure, I took my coffee with whiskey, but how dare this fucking doctor insinuate that I had a problem. I was so sure it wasn't a problem that I automatically countered that doctor's claim with a lie. That alcohol must have been from a party I went to the night before. To this day, I'm amazed at how beguiling denial can be. So true, man. Oh, the wall. The wall of denial keeping us stuck. And it's so hard to see it when we're stuck behind it because it just seems like the truth. This is a happy moment filled out by Orc Liker. And she writes, I'm 24 now and my mom died from her ALS about 18 months ago. Things had always been rough in our relationship and sometimes it's hard for me to remember the good parts. Last week I was looking through my closet for a sweatshirt to wear to work and I noticed one I didn't recognize. At the bottom of the pile of folded sweatshirts was an intensely green, in that vintage 80s way, sweatshirt that had been my mom's from when she was in a sorority. I'm post-college, but sororities are something I despise as an institution. Maybe I'm bitter because I've never been popular or pretty or social enough uh, for them, but shut up. No, I'm not. Anyway, I put it on and felt so comforted. This sweatshirt was the kind of thing she would have worn when I was younger and we were closer. I feel safe wearing it, so much so that after watching a scary movie, I lay it over myself like a blanket when I went to bed for comfort. I was always intimidated by sorority sweatshirts, and now I can wear it like armor to the grocery store on days I feel small. Plus, the nerdy side of me pretends the weird letters are ancient tunes of protection from evil. Things were really rough between us for a long time, including her death, but when I was little, I sometimes thought the whole world of her, and I think finding this old sweatshirt has helped me remember that. I wish I could have fixed things with her, but I try hard to remember that there were good times, too. Oh, thank you for that. That is that is like the definition of bittersweet. I remember after my dad died in 2006, going into his bedroom and... Uh, and just going through his clothes and, and smelling his clothes. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Bad Wolf. And uh, she writes about her depression. Bipolar. It's like a kite's blowing me away and an anchor is pulling me down. Ever since my diagnosis, I feel like I'm struggling to find my true identity. What is the true me? Somewhere between this mania and depression lies my true form that my therapist wants me to find. But what is that? That's deep. That is deep. And I think so universal for those of us that struggle with uh, uh, mental disorder. Um, I, I have found that it's the pursuit of finding our authenticity authenticity that is the thing to focus on more than you know saying am I there yet have I found out who who I am I I don't think we ever fully find who we are I think it's you know that that thing they say in recovery about peeling the layers of the onion and and I think trying to be satisfied with the 
the path along the way is the is the thing to focus on. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Instability Man. He writes, I've spent the last four years seeking an understanding of my mental illness. I bounced between 11 psychiatrists feeling like a failed experiment. Two months ago, I met my current provider, Dr. K. Dr. K spent the last few months helping me express my problems in ways I never thought possible. He listened to me, laughed and cried with me, but most importantly, understood me. I can now happily say that for the first time in a decade, I am H-A-P-P-Y happy. Don't settle for the provider you can get. Look for the one you deserve. Wow. Kudos to you, man. Kudos to you. Any comments to make the podcast better? I want to expressly thank you for your dedication to this podcast. When I couldn't express how I felt when I was struggling, you and your guests helped me find the words. I hope you don't mind. I've made you my patron saint, Paul. I wish you well. I hope that you have fashioned a little voodoo doll of me that you wear around your neck. And if that seems like too much of a hassle, I will just come and hang out with you. And people say, who's that dude? You can say, he's my patron saint. And I'll go, what's up? Tell him I'm a, I'm a modern patron saint. Maybe flash a gang symbol or two. Just keep them off balance. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Cupcake. That's interesting. Uh, or calls, she calls herself Odd Cupcake. Um, and... That is how people say I look from the side. About her depression, suicidal. Everyone at my funeral will be strangers that don't know me, and it's all my fault. I don't think you're being hard enough on yourself. I think think you needed uh, a third or fourth thing in there to pummel yourself. About her compulsive eating, at least I didn't eat from the trash can. About living with an abuser, living with my ex, being treated like I deserve is better than being alone. Isn't it amazing that the things, when we're afraid of being alone, the things that we will accept, the crumbs that we will accept, mind-bottling. Mind-bottling? Yes. They take a brain, they squeeze the juice out of it, and they put it into a bottle, but they don't cap it. They don't cap it. Uh... Any comments to make the podcast better? Maybe more cringy jokes? No, I think I think we are at our cringy joke limit. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Give Me Peace. And she writes, I have acne and I use a retinoid cream on my face that makes my skin dry and fragile. Today, I felt crippled by my loneliness and was shocked that I was able to cry for once. My antidepressants don't like me crying one bit, so crying for once was a miracle. As the tears rolled down my face, my skin began to burn. (laughs) Oh, thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by Cosmic Insignificance. And they write, I love my dog. I love the way she rests her head on my shoulder in the car when she's still sleepy in the morning. I love how, during our walks, when she gets to see the neighbor dog down the street, they bump noses. Her tail flails like a helicopter blade, and she returns to me bouncing and ready to sprint anywhere out of pure joy. I love it when she burrows under the couch cushions and erupts from them after a silent pause like a great white 
great white attacking his seal when she's feeling playful and tosses a ball to herself, chasing it like she can't catch it only to do it, do it so then flick it away again. I read dogs have evolved to read the human face for emotion, so I make it a point to smile at her every time she looks at me, even if it's fake. Even when I feel overcome with sadness, knowing that our time together is rapidly coming to an end. The arthritis is taking a toll. The tumor is spreading. Her ep- epilepsy constantly on my mind that could at any moment take her from me. I still look at her and smile because although it's destroying me, she needs to feel like everything is going to be okay. That I'm going to protect her and spend every last penny, penny I have on her comfort and treatment. That despite the living hell that life is, I would always choose her and love her forever. She's my favorite anything on this planet in a universe that doesn't care if any of us exist. But I care that she exists and she cares about me. That's got to count for something, right? And that makes me feel a little less dead inside and a little more like life is worth living, even if I know it's only for a little while longer. Wow, there's some heaviness there in in that, that love. But man, that's, I relate to so much of that. I was so afraid to get another dog after my last two dogs died because it was so painful and I didn't want to feel that pain again. And then the universe put Gracie in my life and uh, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Heather about her depression. She writes, I once heard depression described as feeling homesick for a place that doesn't exist. I burst into tears because I've never related to anything more and I finally had a way to explain how I feel. That is such, such a an apt description. I think of depression. I think of addiction about her anxiety. In the throes of anxiety, I struggle to focus, feel pins and needles in my hand and feet, sometimes feel very physically weak and constantly on the verge of tears and panic attack in the moment. About her alcoholism or drug addiction, I smoke so much weed that it sometimes doesn't make me feel high anymore. I heard somebody say one time, bottoming out on weed is like getting kicked to death by a rabbit. And I have experienced that. That is, it is such a slow decline into just fogginess and complacency. About her anger issues, I'm quick to respond or snap out of frustration that rises in me quickly. Mostly, mostly around the people that I love and feel most comfortable with and the people that I don't even really care for get the fake patient version of me. I hate the feeling the second you snap and instantly regret it. Thank you for those. And, um, you know, it might be, might be worth checking out, giving up the weed for a little while and feeling your feelings so, so you can, you can deal with them. I mean, one of the things, you know, not that I'm against recreational drug use, but I think when it becomes the sole coping mechanism for us and we're doing it more than we want to, uh, it's, I think it's, it's worth, trying another route. 
This is from the love survey filled out by Josh. He writes, I love raising my son in an emotionally healthy way. Coming from my childhood in which I was emotionally neglected and sexually abused, I feel like I'm really breaking that negative cycle. I've been through years of therapy now and it's helped me so much with raising him. I can tell because of how comfortable and open he is with expressing himself. He's seven now. He has the confidence that I only wished I had when I was his age. I'm fortunate with how much time we spend together. Our favorite activity is skateboarding. I'm having fun getting back into it. I used to be pretty good, and he's getting really good at it too with me teaching him. Man, do I love that. I just love seeing parents having fun with their kids and really, really being present. So awesome. And then finally, this is uh, from the love survey. Uh, This is filled out by, uh, that wasn't trauma. That was my childhood. And they write, uh, I love the sound of my coworkers in the morning. I'm the administrative assistant for a small corporate office. So I sit between the two wings of the one floor building, being surrounded by the sound of friendship, laughter, and frivolity so early in the day makes even a bad morning so much better. Running down a slight hill, not steep enough that you're tripping over your own feet, but just enough of a decline that you have little moments of extended weightlessness between strides. That's such a great one. Listening to this podcast, audiobooks, or videos, and hearing someone say exactly what you've been trying to put into words your entire life. It's like you can breathe again, even if just for a moment, because someone has lifted the fog and shown you a glimpse of the path you've been desperately looking for. That feeling of an immense validation is more healing than I ever imagined. The first line mowed in an overgrown lawn. Oh, that is a great one. The first sip of a drink you've been waiting for all day long. And for me, that's a good iced coffee. The smell of Gracie. The smell of clean sheets. And the last one, a text from someone in your life that's totally out of the blue, asking how you are and letting you know that they're thinking about you. Love those. God, those are so good. So good. My friend Jonathan called me the other day and he said, I'm just calling because I'm thinking about you and I wanted to tell you that I love you. Not, Not only do I love that, but Jonathan used to be a hardcore gang member who, you know, was truly a menace to society. And he turned his life around. And, you know, we were talking about just how much he's changed. And he said, you know, it, it wasn't until I got sober and started dealing with what I was really feeling that I realized I'm really sensitive. And Fuck, that just made my day. Well, if, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, I, I just want to remind you that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.